So today we're going to be going over the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter uh, two, of God and of the Holy Trinity. And specifically, we're going to be uh, <laughs> looking at section one um, of this chapter. I'm not even gonna make apologies for only looking at section one, because section one deals with the existence and attributes of God. And uh, Stephen Charnock, the Puritan pastor and one of the, uh, the, the best uh, theological works of the 17th century wrote a book called The Existence and Attributes of God, and it was this thick. Um, I would show it to you, but I loaned it to a seminary student uh, several years ago and uh, never got it back. It happens with a lot of my books. I just hope that they get good use out of them. So. There you go. Wouldn't that be great? Anyway, so you may want to turn in the back of your Trinity Psalter hymnals to... Westminster Confession of Faith, and specifically to chapter 2. You will find that on uh, page 921. 921. Um, but before we look at the Word of God, or not the Word of God, this is not the Word of God. This is merely a theological cogitation upon the Word of God, a confession of our faith, what we believe the Word of God teaches. Um, I would uh, first uh, call upon us to go to the God of the Word and to ask for his help in understanding uh, him, <laughs> which is something we need help with. God, our gracious Father, as we come into your presence, uh, we ask, O oh Lord, that you would help us to understand your nature. Lord, you are holy and perfect, and we are sinful and flawed. The fall has, uh, O oh Lord, as popular parlance, it's broken us, but it's done worse than that, Lord. It's made us into sinners, and we know that that's affected the way that we think. We know that our thoughts have been, uh, have been marred by, by sin as well. So we pray tonight, Lord, that as we consider you, that you would help us to learn from your word, to learn from the works also of the theologians who have gone before us, the men who uh, you gave uh, greater insight to so that we would be able to treat you reverently and understand your nature better. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Hey, what's the, what's the temperature set to in here? It feels like 75 or 76, which is exactly the place where I begin to get like that. You think? I think it's 75. All right, I'm going to bet 75. Dollar joy. Well, it's set to 86. Holy mackerel. <laughs> but it's not 86. It's inside of 75, though. You're on point. Ah! Well Thank you. Ah! A blow to the heart, heart of, of the dragon. dragon. <laughs> can, you, uh, can you bring it down to 72 by any chance? Of course. <laughs> Thanks, homie. Anyway, all right. Um, yes, need, I'm a homie. You need to get the... Uh, you need I to get have another sweater the, if you want it. All right. So... When it comes to uh, Christians, um, we make a lot of mistakes in our theology. And I don't mean just our, our abstract theology, the theology that's out here. I mean our theology that's in here and that gets worked out practically. One of the things that, uh, that we make terrible mistakes uh, about is uh, misunderstanding the very nature of God himself. One of the things that we often do is we make the mistake that the Israelites made, that Isaiah rebuked them for, or God rebuked them for through the prophet Isaiah. Specifically, we think God is altogether like us, that he thinks like us, that he has a nature like us, um, and so on, when in fact that is not the case. Now, we can, uh, we can make God too much like us, too much like his creature, 
or we can make him entirely unknowable, entirely distant, entirely, uh, you know, incapable of, of um, uh, being understood. Uh, we can make him into the deistic watchmaker who uh, uh, just creates the universe and everything and leaves it to itself. We can make him like uh, the Allah of Islam uh, who cannot enter into a personal relationship with his beings. He is holy and perfect and uh, uh, above our understanding. Um, and so we, uh, it's our job to submit to him, to surrender to his will, and to worship him, but we cannot know him in the sense that Christians can know the Father uh, through the Son, Jesus Christ, with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. But we need to understand God better than we do in order to be um, more practically informed about his nature and how he interacts with us, his creation. So let's look at chapter 2. And hopefully we will learn many things for much. Uh, can we go to the next slide there? Okay. Who would like to read uh, chapter 2, section 1 in its entirety for us? Okay, Nick. Go for it. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and with all most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, Okay, now I'll give you a uh, hundred brownie points if you can tell me something very interesting about that particular paragraph. It's an entire par paragraph, right? But what do you notice about it? It's one sentence. It's one sentence, right? Very good. You get a hundred brownie points. Yes. Um, and this is something that the Westminster divines do uh, continuously. They construct these incredibly long run-on sentences. I do not know this for certain, but I think the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith probably contains, either it's the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Westminster Larger uh, Catechism, probably contains the longest run-on uh, sentence in all of English literature. So um, in any event, what they are doing, though, is they are describing the nature of God. Uh, they put his attributes before us. Uh, they include a lot of superlatives uh, as they do so. What is a superlative? Most, the, the, the greatest, okay? Uh, in other words, you don't get further than this. There is nothing beyond this. Uh, and as a matter of fact, you don't really actually get to this or even near it yourself. Uh, we'll talk about that when we talk about the attributes of God. But uh, let's go to the first cogitation upon what we just read. Cogitation, okay. So uh, there is this statement. It's an, uh, a declaration. And one of the, this is one of the bedrock declarations of uh, Scripture. Right, something that we find all over the Old Testament, uh, most particularly stated in the Shema, um, which is Deuteronomy 6.4. Uh, if there's one passage in the Old Testament that you um, memorize, it should be Deuteronomy 6.4, which goes what? What does it go? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, so how many gods are the Israelites supposed to serve? One, right? 
Um, this, it was this common throughout the ancient Near East in their particular setting? No, no it was not, okay? Um, generally speaking, most of the people groups, they might have one particular god uh, that they gave special reverence to. So for instance, in Athens, who was it? Athena, very good. Uh, let me see if I can trick you up. In Troy, who was it? Poseidon, very good. Okay, so you know they had particular gods associated with the cities, but did the Trojans not believe in Athena? No, they believed in Athena, and they, the Athenians believed in, in Poseidon and so on. Uh, and as a general rule, they tried to hedge their bets by always having temples to all of the major gods who could really mess with their cities all over the place. So for instance, Poseidon was supposed to cause what great calamity? Excuse me? Earthquakes. Poseidon was supposed to be the, uh, the causer of earthquakes. So fool of a took if you don't set up a temple to Poseidon in whatever um, you know, city uh, in Greece or on the, uh, uh, the uh, Ionian mainland you, uh, you're, you're particularly uh, living in. So in any event, um, for the Jews, however, there was but one God, Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth. He wasn't the god of the mountains, he was not the god of the rivers, he was not the god of the springs, he was not the god of the clouds, he was not the god of any particular feature of the earth. This true, too was very different. Most of the gods were associated, as Poseidon was associated with the, the ocean, they were associated with either some activity or some feature. So mountain gods and uh, you, know, you would have the god of the hunt, the god of Bacchus, what was he the god of? You should know Nick. Wine. <laughs> Bacchus was the god of wine and, and uh, merrymaking as well. So uh, there, there you have it. Well, I thought Dionysus. I don't know Bacchus. Well, the, Bac the Bacchanal was the, uh, um, the, the great uh, uh, reverie where you, you get stone drunk. and then. Yeah, I think it may be the case. I'm not. It's been years since yeah, I, I did the, uh, the gods. Anyway, it, but the, it doesn't matter for the point. We're not, this is not a. It's not a section on Greek gods. It's uh, the one true god. <laughs> so Yahweh. Uh, but the the idea being that Yahweh was not associated. Not only was he not associated with a particular feature uh, or activity, he was not associated with a particular area. Uh, the various gods of the ancient Near East, generally speaking, were associated with particular areas, which is one of the reasons why when Nan the Syrian comes uh, and is cleansed of his leprosy and wants to become a Yahweh worshiper, what does he take back to Syria with him? Dirt. Dirt. He takes back part of Israel because there's this understanding in his head, this is the God of Israel. So therefore I have to take Israel with me and put it you know, down at some place in my uh, house and then stand on it in order for me to worship him aright. So, uh, because it's his holy country, you know, so I have to take his holy country with me. This is a profound misunderstanding. Uh, we, we understand that Yahweh, uh, the one who is and who was and whoever will be, is the only God. So uh, not only hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, not only do you have one God, there are no others, okay? There are things that we call gods, or men call gods, but they do not, they are not like God, and they are not gods. So who's going to read 1 Corinthians 8, 4 for us through uh, 6? Yes, Jamie. 
Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. All right. So, interestingly enough, uh, Paul elsewhere identifies... Um, Anything that is sacrificed to a false god is actually being sacrificed to what? Demons. Okay, so it's not to say that there is not a supernatural realm. Um, that uh, it, it's not like God is the only uh, spirit being, for instance, uh, that exists in the supernatural realm. There are other creatures. There are angels, and there are. Demons and who is the the Lord of the demons? Satan, who was himself a fallen angel. So, uh, but these are all the other thing we need to remember is they are not co-equal with God. All right, there is no equal ultimacy between God and the demons. We'll discuss this at uh, various uh, points, but something very important because uh, Pentecostals in particular in American uh, Christianity get this wrong all the time. They conceive of the devil as an equal ultimate force opposing God. And you'll actually find it in books like Piercing the Darkness and This Present Darkness by uh, Frank Peretti and, and, and so on as though uh, the devil is in independent of God. Read the book of Jonah uh, sometime. He is not independent. The devil is yet God's devil uh, is something that Luther said about him. Um, the devil can do nothing without the permission of God. So even his worst works are yet constrained uh, by the will of God. So uh, how about Jeremiah 10.10? 10? Who wants to read that? Okay, Rhoda. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting God. At his wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure the Right. Jeremiah there has talked about how um, men, talented men, set up idols. They, uh, they pound the gold flat. Uh, they, they build their idol with great skill and ingenuity and so on. But ultimately, they're, worth, they're worshiping nothing. This is the work of their hands and, and nothing more. It's just wood and uh, metal and paint. Uh, whereas he then turns to the people of Israel and he says, the Lord is the true God. For them, though, this was, this was something that was a problem. Uh, because one of the things that's revealed in Jeremiah is the fact that they were worshiping these false gods. They had uh, turned to the queen of heaven, for instance, and were uh, making raisin cakes in her honor. They were observing uh, the various holidays that were devoted to Ishtar and the, uh, the surrounding Canaanite gods in the hopes that they would, they would uh, obtain favor with them. Uh, they hadn't entirely removed Yahweh worship uh, from their, their midst, but they had filled, for instance, the temple with the worship of other gods. So uh, you had an awful kind of syncretism and pluralism. Is pluralism something that God is okay with? Where do we get a definitive statement saying that uh, pluralism ain't okay in the Bible? Yes? Yes, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods but me. So no other, nothing. Um, all right, let's go to the next one. Uh, this means, obviously, that the gods of the nations are false idols. Uh, that statue there is from the island of Bali uh, in Indonesia. Uh, Bali is a mostly Hindu nation. Uh, Hinduism has a giant pantheon of, uh, of gods. I think it has the largest of all the pantheons, as a matter of fact, because what the Hindus do 
is as soon as they bump into another god, they simply add that to the, uh, the pantheon. So for instance, um, uh, in uh, Singapore, there was a, uh, a Hindu uh, street painter, uh, and this was during um, Diwali, Diwali, the, uh, the festival of colors, uh, he was painting various um, deities, okay? So he had, uh, he had um, uh, the one with many arms. Uh, Shiva. Shiva. Okay. Uh, and he had, uh, he had Vishnu, and he had Jesus, and he had Mary, and, you know, so he's doing all of these in, in chalk. I mean, it's very well done, but... It, it showed the, you know, these are all deities. These are all worthy of our worship and inclusion within the pantheon. Um, but what the Bible tells us is that uh, there, is no, there is no other god but God. Uh, therefore, all the gods of the nations are idols. Now, is this something that uh, people like to hear? The answer is no. Is, is, your, is your beeper going off now? Yes, but it's because I changed it earlier. Oh, <laughs> so that this wouldn't happen. Got it. Right. Yeah, that's it, precisely. It just reminds me, don't forget to check your sugar to make sure it's correct. Got it. All right. So don't forget to check your sugar so you don't, you know, go into <laughs> shock or something like that. Got it. Got it. All right. So um, uh, 96, Psalm 96 4. Who wants to read that? Who, who? Okay, Son. So they're nothing more than stone and creativity. Um, they are creatures, uh, or they, they're the creation of creatures, uh, not, the, uh, not the creators, and they have no power in the world whatsoever. So um, this is something, obviously, that Christians have to hold on to. We have great difficulty, though, uh, when it comes to expressing this, particularly if we have a more moderate or liberal bent in in our politics and theology. So for instance, um, it, it is very difficult for us to tell uh, Muslims Allah is no God, or to tell Hindus um, there is no Vishnu, there is no, um, uh, I wanted to say uh, Ishtar, well there is no Ishtar either. So, or Zoroastrians, there is no Zoroaster and so on. Um, they are all idols. Uh, this sounds to them, what? Arrogant, arrogant, pompous, arrogant. Um, how dare you? Now, how do Christians try to get around that? How do we try to not tell people that there aren't other gods? What do we say? It's actually just as arrogant, this methodology that we use. Very popular amongst liberals. I don't believe there are other gods. No, 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 no. It's not the uh, you have your faith, I have my faith. They're just equally, you know, that's a... And it all comes down to you make believe this way, I make believe this way, yeah. <laughs> which is actually very offensive. You know, that's uh, I've never in my entire life met a Hindu or a Muslim who's willing to do that. Incidentally, you know, say my, my, my faith is not make believe. Your faith may be make believe. <laughs> you know, um, what do we do? We pretend that their God is the same as our God. So that Allah is the same as Yahweh, and uh, Buddha is the same as Yahweh, and so on. And it's, it's utterly incomprehensible, uh, because the gods in the various holy books that describe them are described entirely differently. They have different, uh, they have different 
attributes, they have different purposes, there's a different system of salvation, but we'll try to do that um, because we don't want to offend people. But in so doing, who are we offending? God. Okay, we're telling false uh, falsehoods about God, so don't do that. Do not, um, if somebody says all of our, you know, all our gods are the same. I actually, true story, when I went to uh, TBI, and I, I'll go ahead and say this, um, the, the land uh, that TBI is built on was actually, uh, it was once owned by a sheikh who owned, uh, who owned the only mosque in town. And he was, he's essentially functionally the imam, the religious leader of that particular Muslim community uh, in Kapchora. So he had this large piece of land. It's very rocky. It's no good for farming. Um, and he, he was in great debt, um, wanted to build a new house. So he sold the land to TCWM uh, to build uh, TBI. So it's, it's kind of it's funny. As you're going up the road to TBI, you pass a mosque, uh, which is just off of the property, which is his, his mosque. Uh, and he's been, I mean, legally, he's been very good with, uh, with TBI. Land sales in Uganda are a nightmare because what happens is somebody sells land and then um, as soon as they die, their heirs uh, try to invalidate the sale to get the land that they sold back. Oh, he, you know, this was fraudulent and so on. So they will tie you up. So every ministry I know of, and I mean every single ministry I know of operating in Uganda and Rwanda and so on in East Africa generally, is tied up with just gigantic hassles about the land and so on. And renting isn't easier either. It's just... Uh, Oh my word! The, the frivolous lawsuit is—you uh, know—it's uh, it's worse than, than in America. I didn't even think that was possible, but it, it is. Anyway, so he's been good in that in that sense. But so we arrived, and uh, Charlie gets out and greets him. You know, assalamu alaikum, wassalam, So. And I just like, ah, I'm not, my head's not moving, my mouth is not moving, I'm not, you know. <laughs> my head is not moving. I'm not. So, um. Smile, don't <laughs> So, uh. <laughs> Charlie's like, thank you for not <laughs> contradicting the, uh, the old man. When, anyway, so, but we can't let people go to hell without at least telling them at some point, you are going to hell. You're on your way. Um, that is the least that we can do uh, for, for people. And then to direct them in the right way. If somebody's house was on fire, you would say, well, I don't want to wake them up, right? No, I mean, that wouldn't happen. You would get out and bang on their door and tell them the danger they're in. Well, everybody who's worshiping false gods, their house is on fire, and someday they are going to burn to death. So you need to, um, you need to be willing to actually do that, um, hopefully without starting a major uh, religious war on the property of the institute where you're supposed to be teaching, in any event. Um, but moving to the next. One God, but, one, but not one person. Now, this is very important. We have the absolute assertion that God, there is but one God. We would see that uh, absolutely, but we need to not confuse that with the idea 
that there is only one God and one person in the Godhead uh, at the same time. We do not want to pretend that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all one person. What do we call that when we say, Patrick. that's modalism, Patrick? Well, that's right, when they, they say there's but one person acting as um, the three different persons of the Trinity. Can anybody give me a Protestant or semi-Protestant, we shouldn't call it Protestant, uh, heret uh, heretical group that actually believes that? Yeah. Well, Socinians would be, yeah, they don't actually believe in the deity of Christ, though, so uh, they believe they're not technically modalists. They're Unitarians. So, uh, oneness Pentecostals would be modalists, okay? Um, Unitarians uh, believe that the Holy Spirit is the power of God, but he is not um, the Son of God. And uh, what's the other one? Unitarians? And that the Son is not God himself. So we need to... Excuse me? Who, who would you say believes that? Unitarians. Socinians would be under uh, Unitarians. Uh, so Socinians were uh, uh, followers originally of Socinius, who was a Polish heretic. So, uh, but the most common Unitarians would be the Unitarians that we find in the United States. Uh, people like Henry David Thoreau and his family, they were Unitarians and so on. They tended, uh, here's the sad thing, uh, the majority of Unitarians came from Congregationalists and Presbyterians, so they came out of Puritanism. Um, they lost their faith, but their reason led them to, uh, to determine that there had to be a creator, but uh, they didn't like the, uh, the one in the Bible. Yes, Joy. Well, my understanding is, when we were in, in Philadelphia, is that they were, the Unitarians were very popular amongst those people who were growing up from um, uh, the Amish, and the Mennonite, from the Mennonites. Really? Yeah. Mm, that's an odd job. Mm. Oh, well, all right. So, from Anabaptist to Unitarian, that's a sad point. Uh -huh. All right, so this is Robert Shaw. Shaw, one God, but not one person. The assertion that there is but one God does not mean that there is but one divine person, for it is afterwards stated that in the unity of the Godhead there are three persons, but it means that the divine being is numerically one in nature of essence, or essence. This is affirmed in opposition to the polytheism of heathen nations and to the heresy of the tritheists, who hold that there are three distinct Godheads, or that one Godhead is divided into three distinct parts. The unity of the divine being might be discovered by the light of nature, for the same process of reasoning which leads to the idea of a god leads also to the conclusion that there can be no more gods than one. There can be but one first cause, one self-existent, independent, omnipotent, infinite, and supreme being. It is a contradiction to suppose otherwise. And even in the um, pantheons, you had various degrees of power. So, for instance, um, uh, one god brought forth uh, with his wife, the, uh, the other gods, and they were lesser in power. So, for instance, in the, uh, uh, the Greek, yes, in the, in the Greek uh, uh, mythos, you had, the, uh, you had the, uh, the, the Titans first, and then Zeus being one of the sons of the Titans, and so on, and Zeus was greater in power than his children, and so on. So there was a diminishing chain of power. But the idea of uh, more than one omnipotent omnipresent, all-powerful supreme being is just, uh, it's, it's foolish and it's a, it's a confusion. But um, we don't reason our way to God. We find out about him, and we've been discussing this before in Special Revelation, right? Okay. Let's go to the next one. So, now, one of the things that we have to deal with seriously is the fact that the word God comes up in the scriptures 
not referring to Yahweh, not referring to the one God. Um, and so what do we do with those uses? Well, we need to understand them and understand why they're being used. So first, the name of God is indeed given in Scripture through various other beings, an account of some resemblance which, in some particular respect, they bear to God. Angels are called gods an account, uh, on account of the excellence of their nature. Uh, you'll find that in the Psalms. Magistrates, that is the civil magistrates, are called gods because in the execution of their office, they act in God's name and because we are bound to obey them. Uh, Moses was a god to Pharaoh, and Aaron was his prophet, because Aaron received the divine messages which he carried to Pharaoh immediately from Moses, whereas other prophets received their messages to the people immediately from God himself. So you remember God said to Moses, what was Moses' excuse for not wanting to be the leader of God's people? I don't speak well. I have a speech impediment. Well, your brother speaks well. He'll speak for you. Okay, so I'll speak to you, you speak to him, then he speaks to Pharaoh. So, but that's the only time you had that relationship in scripture. Normally it was the prophet speaks to the people. Uh, and Joy, you had your hand up. Yeah, I was going to ask, when you're saying God there, are you talking about, like, Lord? No, the, uh, the, the, word, the words that are employed here, and this is the difficulty in translation. Let's take a look at the, uh, so for instance... Let's go ahead and uh, let's take a look at uh, Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight. Exodus twenty-two. Yes. So, okay, you see verse 28, you shall not, this is the NKJV, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Uh, and then there will be a, uh, a little uh, sub-note there uh, for, in most of your Bibles on uh, 28, 22, 28, directing you to be, for Acts 23, 5, bum, 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 bum. Mm -hmm. So, uh, where this is, uh, this is quoted again, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul quotes that before the, uh, for the high priest. Specifically there, you're going to find um, that the word or the term for ruler is actually one of the terms that's, uh, or the names that's used for God. Let's go to a more um, uh, deliberate one. Oh, crud. That's 47.7, isn't it? No, that's 97.7. I always, Roman numerals drive me nuts. So, Psalm. Yep. Okay, so. Let all be put to shame who serve carved images, who boast of idols. Worship him, all you gods. That's 97.7. Is it? Yeah. Okay. So, lords. Right. Then, Colin, curse a ruler of your people. Those are two separate thoughts, right? 
Mm-hmm. Right, so for there, for where it says God, talking about that's Elohim. But right. for ruler, it's the word Nazi, Nazi. Nazi, that's not one uh, of the terms we have. Yeah, sure. Mashiach. Yeah. It's a like, judge. It's a, yeah, that's yeah, a, a judge of your people. Right. So, uh, oh, no, judges, Shofet. Judges, Shofetim. Um, so, uh, so the, but the, uh, you will find in, um, in Psalms, obviously, you have the, uh, the issue of do not, uh, you've got these, the, the gods and so on. Idols are called gods. Uh, I'm looking for Moses now. In Moses 7.1, then the Lord said to Moses, see, I've made you as God, but the as you'll note in your NKJV, what do they do with it? No? Italicized. Whenever you find an italicized word in the Bible, what does that indicate? It's, go ahead. No, when it's italicized, it means it's not actually in the text. This is a helper word that's been put in in order to help you to understand it. The text literally says, I have made you God to Pharaoh. Okay, so that's the, uh, uh, but he is not literally God. Um, it would be interesting, yes. I, I don't have a, uh, a Hebrew here to, uh, uh, to check which word it is that's being used there. It's not uh, Lord, so I'm guessing it's Elohim uh, to Pharaoh. And because it's not, uh, it's not translated Lord lowercase, uh, it's probably not Adonai either. Yeah, so, hey, look, I guess right. I has, I've made you Elohim to, uh, uh, to Pharaoh, all right? So um, Moses was God to Pharaoh, and Aaron was his prophet, and so on. Idols are called gods because idolaters account them gods and honor them as such. And Satan is called the god of this world because he rules over the greater uh, part, should be, sorry, typo, greater part of the world, and they are his servants and do his work. So somebody read 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Who got it? Second mm-hmm. Corinthians four four. But though there. No 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 no. Second Corinthians four four. That's not that's not the actual court uh, scripture. Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Right. So one of the things that we need to remember is that although the word God is used. In most places in scripture, it's used lowercase, not uppercase. The indication is this is not, you know, God as in uppercase G. We all understand, right? Okay. So, but though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, yet to us there is but one God who is the only living and true God. He is styled the lowly God in order to distinguish him from the idols, which are altogether destitute of life. He is the only God. Moving to um, the next one. All right. Now, dealing with one of the, uh, uh, the phrases, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. This has caused so much trouble for Christians uh, in history. Particularly the phrase passions today still irritates the living daylights out of people. Um, but uh, body, parts, and passions. They'll argue, well, I, I read that God has an arm. I read that God has a nose, even. The, the, you know, the, the breath of his nostrils parts the Red Sea. I, I learn, for instance, 
Also, that God gets angry, that God loves, that God hates. Uh, how can you say that God does not have passions? Well, um, God employs anthropomorphisms in dealing with us, but we need to understand that uh, although he uses these uh, ways of speaking in order to communicate ideas to us, um, otherwise he would have been uh, impossible for people to understand, uh, yet that does not indicate that he has these things. Now, one of the things that we need to remember is this. We are, we are body and soul, right? We are literally uh, composed of body and spirit, but we are not able to understand perfectly because we are embodied, we spend our entire time uh, here on earth embodied, enabled to understand an immaterial being uh, like God, uh, to perceive him, and certainly our ancestors would not have been able to understand without um, the common uh, reference that they would understand in their own world, arms, legs, um, uh, head, chest, etc. Uh, and so, for instance, God, it can be spoken of not only as having body parts like an arm and legs and so on, but he can also be spoken of as having a heart and so on. Uh, so, David, how was David described in his relationship with God? A man after his own heart. Does God literally have a heart? No, but then again, is, heart, is the organ that pumps blood in our body literally the seat of the emotions? No, it's not. Or is it? Anyway, moving on. Um, but uh, getting to this, God has no body, therefore, as we have just said, he is free from all limitations of space and distance and is omnipresent. What does omnipresent mean? He's everywhere. So is God here right now? Yes. Yeah, that should be an intimidating kind of thought, isn't it? Comforting. Comforting as well. <laughs> this is true. It's, that's absolutely true. So God is with us. There is no pit so deep, no height so high that uh, God is inaccessible to us uh, and cannot be reached at any moment by prayer. It also means that, uh, are we ever really alone? No. no, we're not. So therefore, can we ever really sin alone? No, no. no we are always, what was R.C. Sproul's great phrase there? Quorum Deo. No, he did. He actually created the Latin. I'm sure the <laughs> phrase didn't exist before. Uh, so... Quorum Deo, yeah, before the face of God. God has no parts. This means that his personality and powers and qualities are perfectly integrated so that nothing in him ever alters. With him there is no variation or shadow uh, due to change, okay? He cannot be reduced, he cannot be increased, and, and so on. This is something that's very, uh, very important. We will uh, we'll discuss this when it comes to uh, his immutability as well. Um, all right. Thus, he is free from all limitations of time and natural processes, and he remains eternally the same. God has no passions. This does not mean that he is unfeeling and passive, or that he is not, there is nothing in him that corresponds to emotions and affections in us, but that whereas human passions, especially the painful ones, fear, grief, regret, despair, are in a sense passive and involuntary, being called forth and constrained by circumstances not under our control, the corresponding attitudes in God have the nature of deliberate voluntary choices and therefore are not of the same order as human passions at all. So God's emotions are original to him. This is of great importance, especially not just to us as Calvinists, but to us as Christians in understanding God's love for us. All right? And understand, understanding a phrase like, why does God love us? God loves us because he loves us. 
his love to you was original to him. In other words, um, okay, uh, there was a time before I loved my wife because I had not yet met her. I had not yet come into contact with the uncomprehensible wonderfulness that is my wife. Upon meeting her, then in response to that incomprehensible wonderfulness, I began to love her almost immediately, although it embarrasses the living daylights out of her. So that was the way it worked. But my love was responsive, okay? It was not original to me. I did not conceive of my wife prior to meeting her and then determine when this person exists, I will love them, and so on. Um, but God, when it comes to you, is not reactive in his love. This is very important, all right? One of the things that I try to tell couples about uh, their life after they're married is their love cannot be reactive. Ephesians 5 makes a declaration that many Christians just can't handle or, or tackle, and it's simply this. Husbands, love your wives. All right? This is a, it's an absolute commandment. Husbands, love your wives. Now, this indicates that you have the power to do what? Hate. Oh, yes, but you have the power to love. Oh. And it doesn't say, it does not say, husbands, love your wives, comma, if. All right? Or if, dot, dot, dot. Uh, and then give a, you know, a bunch of, of reasons for loving your wife. It's an absolute commandment, love your wife. Then there's the command that, uh, obviously, wives are given to do what towards their husbands? To honor or respect your husbands, okay? Now, these are not conditionals, okay? They are their commandments. Just do it. In the same way, God loves us because he loves us. It, uh, it isn't because he sees within us something that's just infinitely worthy of his love. I love him because he is just so good. I am not. All right? Uh, I am not sinless. I am not perfect. I am not, you know, I'm not any better than, um, you know, 6.8 billion of the world's inhabitants. Um, maybe 6.5, 6.6 of the world's inhabitants. But, the, uh, but there's no reason within me that God should love me. The only things within me, in my fallen state, when a holy God looks at them, it should produce uh, offense. And it is God's desire in loving us to conform us to the image of his son, to make us into something truly worthy in glory of love. But because his love is original to us, it's not lost because of things we do. Now that doesn't mean that like a parent he can't become angry with us and chasten us because that's the right reaction. But his love, even that isn't reactive because does anything we do take him by surprise? No. no. All right. So God is not reactive. He doesn't change uh, in that sense. Uh, and his emotions are original. They emanate from him. Our emotions, unfortunately, are reactive. You know, we, we react to the environment around us and we react to what's going on. So, um, uh, da, 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 corresponding attitudes. God, uh, in God, um, all right, so not of the same order as human passions at all. This is from J.I. Packer's Knowing God, incidentally. Uh, if you want any quick introduction or systematic intro, uh, introduction to the Christian faith, Knowing God is probably one of the best you can possibly uh, pick up. And its sequel, Knowing Christ, is almost as good, but not quite. All right. Joy. Speak the words.
genuinely in, in the right sense, not the, not the, the, the Are you going to use the word arbitrary? Oh, I hate that word. Hmm. I, know, but you, I, I like original better. Well, like, but, but so is, he's the origin. There is the, what it meant, yeah, no, meant I understand. Mean, and then there's the usage that we, we know. Okay, so let's go to the, uh, the next one. All right, so within God's attributes, though, there are qualities to the different attributes. All right? Attributes are expressions of his, his nature, his being. And we can put different titles to his various attributes. God is possessed of all possible perfections. The perfections of God are called his attributes because they are ascribed to him as the essential properties of his nature. They have been called natural and moral, incommunicable and communicable uh, attributes. These attributes are called incommunicable, of which there is not the least resemblance to be found among creatures. I'll give you an easy one. How many of you are in some sense omnipresent? <laughs> not in the least. No matter how much I eat, I'm never going to become omnipresent. I can try, but it's not going to happen. So I cannot be simultaneously present at all places within the universe. I, I am not uh, that coextensive. However, this is not true of God. God is present everywhere uh, at the same time. So that is one of his incommunicable attributes. However, there are uh, communicable attributes as well. I'll give you another example. Wisdom, okay? We can, to a certain degree, be wise. Now, our wisdom will never le- uh, reach the level of perfection that it does in God, right? But nonetheless, we can have, we can be imitators of God in this. We went over this. Uh, Jesse was taking the men through the communicable and the incommunicable attributes of God uh, yesterday. So I know that uh, Nick and, and Derek uh, and Chris are probably a little bored at this point in time. But we're going to talk about it again. Um, so there is an imperfect resemblance in the communicable attributes within us, even in our marred and fallen state. So let's go to the next. So, let's talk about his incommunicable attributes. First, God is infinite. To be infinite according to the literal signification of the word is to be unbounded, unlimited, as applied to the other attributes of God. The term denotes their absolute perfection. His love is infinite. Not only his presence is infinite. Okay? He's, it, it doesn't just speak of the fact that he's everywhere, that he can't be bounded uh, in, his, um, in his being, but also his perfections are infinite as well. Yes? Um, I know that in the sense what this is talking about that God is definite in in every way. Um, but are we infinite in like in one aspect as in our souls are infinite? In in terms of our immortality? Yeah. Yes, we'll talk about how um, in one sense um, our immortality uh, is like God's eternality, but in another sense, it isn't. Because um, if I were to draw our existence and represent it, I could write a line, you know, and then continue going with the arrow indicating it goes on forever in that direction. But there would be a point at which it began. Yeah. When it comes to God, the arrows stretch in both directions. There was no, there, there was no point before God. So he is, uh, he is eternal in a sense in which we are not eternal. So um, God is self-existent and independent. He has all life, glory, uh, and blessedness in and of himself. His existence is necessary and underived, for his name is I am that I am. He is uh, the only one who can say that, the only being in the entire, or, I mean, he's in the universe, but he's not constrained by it, the only being ever who could say I am that I am. 
because there was a time before we were, all right? Uh, all of you, uh, and you don't have necessary being in you. You didn't bring yourself into existence. You don't hold yourself in existence. That's the amazing thing. Our immortality is conditioned upon God's willingness to allow us to continue. Because could he take us out of existence entirely and the snap of a finger? Yes. Why won't he? Yes. Well, in the case of his children, yeah. Why won't he take us out of existence? Because he's promised not to. He's covenanted not to. And he never breaks his promises. His glory and blessedness are likewise underived. His glory necessarily results from, or rather consists in, the absolute perfection of, it should be his, not has, his own nature. And his blessedness is all summed up in the possession and the enjoyment of his own infinite excellencies, being thus all-sufficient in and unto himself. He must be independent of any other being. He stands not in need of any creatures which he has made, nor can he derive any glory from them. Every other being receives its all from him, but he receives no advantage from any. In other words, we don't add anything to God. Okay? Does he need anything from us? No. He tries to explain this to us using um, the terms that we would understand by saying, you know, mine would have 1,000 years. I was hungry. I could tell you. I don't need you. Uh, you know, and... Um, uh, I am so vast that, you know, great baths of oil uh, would, not, uh, would not satisfy me. God is not in need of any of our help. He doesn't need our, he doesn't need our prayers. He doesn't need our love. He's not, I mean, and uh, I mention this because there are these awful sentimental versions of Christianity that are completely untrue that say that God created you because he was lonely. He wanted a creature to love who would love him back. <laughs> and you're, you're like, oh, my word, this is awful. It's blasphemous. God created you to glorify and enjoy him out of the pleasure of his own goodwill. But he didn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't even, and this is amazing, he doesn't even need song. Not really. Um, but the fact is that he derives uh, glory from us because that's the right thing. You know, we should be able to glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? But we don't give anything to him. This is interesting. The, uh, the Greek gods uh, were said to be angered when their worshipers did not give them sacrifices because they, in some sense, needed uh, their sacrifices. Um, and uh, one, uh, there was this idea that, uh, you know, in a lot of the, uh, uh, in the various worships, that if a god did not receive worship from any people, he would eventually wither and die. Nobody would be feeding him, uh, so to speak. So, but that's not the nature of God. Let's go to the next. His incommunicable attributes continue. God is the foundation of all being. As he has life in of himself, so he is the author of that life which is in every creature. In him we live and move and have our being. All the life of the vegetative animal and rational world, the life of grace here and the life of glory hereafter, are of him and derived from him. Uh, with him is the fountain of life, of all sorts of life. Of him and through him and to him are all things. From this it follows that God has most sovereign dominion over all his creatures to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever he pleases. This is very important. The idea being that he created everything, seen and unseen. All right? And we are entirely dependent upon him. And therefore he has a right as our creator to do whatever he wishes with us. Why uh, the... the the clay has no right to say to the potter, why have you made me thus? And after he's fashioned us into whatever he desires. So the sovereignty of God in our lives is absolute. And that's, that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, 
And that's something that we have difficulty to uh, uh, dealing with often. Also, God is eternal. Um, this gets to what um, Derek was talking about. The word eternal is sometimes used both in scripture and in common language it is in a restricted sense. For a long time, or for a period whose termination is to us unknown. Sometimes uh, it denotes a duration which, though not without being, is without end. Thus angels and the souls of men are eternal, for though they had a being, they will have no end. But eternity in the strict and proper sense of the word signifies a duration without beginning, without end, without succession. And in this sense, it is peculiar to the great God. One of the things that we need to remember is that God uh, existed before time, all right, before time began. And what were the great reference that he gave us for keeping time? What's well, that giant wristwatch in the sky? Yes, this is true. There was light before the sun, but he says specifically he created uh, the sun. sun the, right, so they tell us, you know, what, whether it's day or night, and we are able to, you know, judge the passing of time. God existed before the passing of time. He, he existed before the universe. And, and, and you, get the, you get to a point where you're like, well, using the term before, before is a time word, and if there's no time, there's no before, there's no after, there's no present, there's no past, there's no future, and so on. But that God, God just is. God always will be, okay? So what? <laughs> yeah. It's so weird, like that title, you think about it. The Land Before Time? It's not The Land Before Time. There was a time, if they're pretending. Anyway, whatever. Uh, okay, let's move to the next one. I think this is, is this the last slide, incidentally? Yes. Yay! Woo! God is immutable and unchangeable. With him is no variable of this, no shadow of turning. Uh, to this important truth, reason and revelation give their united testimony. His immutability necessarily results from his absolute perfection. If he were to change, it must be either to the better or to the worse, okay? Um, God is already perfect. Therefore, he cannot become more perfect. Uh, and he, he uh, can't change and become less perfect. He cannot grow, and this, is, this becomes very, very important um, when uh, speaking of God's uh, ability to understand and to know everything that is going to happen. There are varieties of Christian, um, uh, Christian theology that speak of God voluntarily limiting his ability to, to know things or to change things um, in order that uh, there might be some um, semblance of human uh, free will in the sense of uh, not knowing what we're going to, God voluntarily chooses not to know uh, these things. There are other forms of theology that progressive Christians have come out with where God grows in his understanding. Uh, they're being used at the moment for, at one time, God you know, didn't think homosexuality was great. Now, <laughs> you know, God has grown in his understanding. Uh, and you're like, no, that it, was, it was always in the category of evil, and you guys just and so evil stuff you like. It's not that God has changed. So um, the, uh, the, the idea that God is immutable, he is perfect. The expressions of his character and his nature, they are always the same. He is without change. He cannot become less than he is and he cannot become more than he is uh, because perfection cannot be Im improved upon. Um, all right, so immutable, unchangeable. Uh, Malachi 3.6 
For I am the Lord, I do not change, therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. This is a very important idea. I don't stop loving you because I don't change. You know, your wife may change her mind about you, your husband may change his mind about you, and so on, uh, but I don't, okay? I, I remain true to my covenants, and I don't change uh, in them. All right, who would like to, I've been reading too much, who wants to read the last one? Anybody? Okay, Derek, go ahead. Okay. He has a perfect knowledge of himself, and he, I'm sorry, I was kidding. Anyway, he only knows himself perfectly. He knows all things besides himself, um, whether they be past, present, or to come, in our, in our way of measuring them by time. He knows all creatures, from the greatest to the least. He knows all the actions of his creatures, whether secret or open, all their words, thoughts, and intentions, hence the scripture declares, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good, Proverbs um, 15, 3. Um, so, God knows all things. There is nothing uh, that is unknown to him. He understands himself perfectly. His understanding is also infinite. Uh, one of the problems that we have is our understanding is finite. And um, I used to know the Latin as something Infinitum non capax infinitum, or something like that. Um, it means the finite cannot understand or comprehend, fully comprehend the infinite. Um, there are points about God we're never going to get. Yes, Derek? So, um, I always hear people do that thing where they think that, depending on what place it is, mm -hmm. uh, they think that God doesn't go. I actually know Joker had. A soldier say to me that um, God's God's not going to be there like during like certain times of war or whatever or certain places because like or a certain person fears God's not going to be there and it's just like I always I don't understand why people have that mindset it's just so weird to me you know you ever hear that stuff like mm -mm. like say mm -hmm. oh oh downtown Fayetteville yeah God's not going to be there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've heard of um, places described as godless, you know, um, or God forsaken is a uh, is another um, uh, as though God has left those places. And, and there were times in which one of the most important, uh, oh boy, one of the most important uh, signs that the Lord gave uh, to His people Israel was when uh, the glory cloud ascended from the temple. Uh, first, it had descended when Solomon. Uh, we'll read about that as we're going through First Kings. Um, Solomon inaugurates the temple. The glory cloud fills the place, and it's so thick that the uh, priests uh, are, are forced out. It indicates God's presence in the midst of his people. And then later on, because of their, uh, their wickedness, uh, prior to the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, the glory cloud ascends to the Mount of Olives and then away. Um, does this mean that God was no longer present in Israel? No, but the, the symbolism of not tabernacling, not with you. I'm, I'm not with you anymore. Okay? You have, you have um, so apostatized. You, uh, he, uh, he writes them a writ of divorce. 
uh, and says, not my people. They become lo ami at that point in time. So we need to remember that God can use symbolism like that uh, to make a people God forsaken. But there's a real sense in which you can never be you know, not present. Uh, uh, even in the most God forsaken, we would call it places, God is still present. So, but there's a, um, it's interesting. Uh, one of the things that soldiers have commented on it is, uh, uh, to me is, uh, one, one fellow uh, commented on landing in Afghanistan uh, and spending time there. He said, you know, you just, you got this sense of the godlessness of the place. It was dark. It was, um, uh, there was a, spiritually, it was a, it was a heavy place. You know, there was a, there was a feeling of heaviness, none of the light. Uh, of, of God's presence um, uh, appeared to be there. And he said, I don't know how to explain it, but I've had more than one guy. Uh, you know, and we're not talking about crazy Pentecostals and Charismatics who are feeling their way through Christianity. I'm talking about reform guys who have gone there and said, you just don't understand how spiritually dark these places are uh, and how oppressive it feels uh, to be in them as a result. And I've gone to places like that myself. Uh, for instance, when I go back to New York City, just the feeling of, of godlessness um, and depravity uh, that exists within the city is is palpable. You know, you just want to get, and you, you forget how conservative Fayetteville, in some senses, is. You know, um, so it, maybe I was just spiritually prescient, but I hated it for different reasons. I didn't I didn't have that feeling. I just I got sick of everybody swearing ninety nine percent of the time. So uh, you know, and everybody always being angry or flipping out and stuff. Anyway, so. Um, but, yes, but we know that in point of fact, God is actually always everywhere simultaneously. And you can't get away with anything. Yes? So, the degree to which, you know, God is sovereign over all things and the devil is yet God's devil. Mm-hmm. That there is a sense in which God is in hell in that he keeps it going. Yes. But they do not feel the comfort of his presence. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, outer darkness, gnashing of teeth, and the horrible feeling of being cut off from God. Absolutely estranged from him. So, yes? Um, I was wondering, what about those passages where it talks about... So, I understand that he was there, but like those passages when he's saying like he turns his back Like little Loa me, where he divorces them. Yeah, or like in was it was that in uh was Leviticus or Numbers? It was a period or Exodus where he appears to to uh, it's an Exodus at the end where he uh, he says I'll pass I'll have my glory pass before you, but you cannot see my front parts because that would be too much. I'll I'll show so you my back parts. Like yeah, there was that. So, then, even in the Psalms, David saying, "Please don't turn," you know. Yeah, no, there's, there's a sense of, you know, the, the, the awesome um, physicality of his, uh, of his presence is too much, for, um, too much for fallen creatures to endure. We get that from Isaiah 6. We get that from um, uh, even the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, where just, you know, the veil is briefly lifted from, uh, from Christ and, you know, the apostles freak out. Uh, and even there, it wasn't, you know, the fullness of his glory being manifested so anyway all right so we'll get more into the communicable attributes and and the rest of uh these things next time yes i think this chapter is going to be memorized 
anybody wants to memorize it, this one will be $10. Oh, the whole chapter, not just section one. Chapter. <laughs> Which chapter are we talking about? The whole chapter, chapter two. Oh. Do you know I, I memorized the Westminster Shorter Catechism from beginning to end before my licensure exam? So, um, and then I gradually, over the years, spent so much time forgetting it. It was uh, yes. Oh, it was. Uh, no, it was Gillespie. Gillespie. Yeah. He, uh, he prayed before the, uh, that, and then yeah, the authors of the Shorter Catechism said, 